hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be your host. First off, like always, we want to say thank you for your support. We're both so happy to be able to create something that others are enjoying. Uh, also, want to shout out our social medias. Uh, we got a new one for you guys this week, actually. We're on Twitter now. It's at Beyond underscore breakers. We'll be posting show updates, uh, some content with the show too, some interaction, that kind of thing. But mostly we wanted to do that just to give everybody another means of interacting with us and everything. In addition to that, we also have our Instagram, which is beyond the breakers podcast, our email, which is beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com and our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. Uh, money from the Patreon will be used to make the show better. It's for web hosting, research materials. And just another note, we always want to keep the show ad-free. And uh, with that being said, I'll go ahead and uh, bring Tanner into it. Tanner, how you doing? Doing pretty well. Good. Yeah, everything's everything's going well. Starting to warm up a little bit here. I think it's supposed to be like 80 degrees soon. Nice. That uh, spring has sprung, right? Too fast, too fast. Uh, also i know you had mentioned you wanted to shout out your instagram yeah i like i like attention also Uh, i'm (laughs) i'm also on instagram uh for my individual accounts Uh, i am at hive.fleet.hodag the name is a long story um (laughs) i tweet or uh, not tweet uh instagram i'll post about the show uh a lot of cat pictures a lot of model pictures Models like plastic models, not not exqui- <laughs> not, not the other not, kind of model. not exquisite human form, um, <laughs> but like painting models. Uh, so anyway, you can follow me on there. Um, I like to post uh, show updates and things like that too. So yes, I am nice. I am also there on Instagram. Yeah, definitely. Everybody, check that out. And give it a follow. Uh, I know you mentioned you might be getting into some uh, ship modeling soon and painting. So that might be something that some of our listeners would be interested in checking out. Yeah. I've got a, I've got uh, I have the battleship Sharnhorst on its nice. way. Well, that's actually a great transition into what we're going to be talking about, which is a lot of uh, German Navy during world war two stuff. All right. So with that out of the way, let's get into it. Uh, if I say the phrase, Torpedo Alley. Does that mean anything to you? Does that does that ring a bell? Not specifically, but I can probably guess it's a it's a probably a, a good area to have your ship sunk by a U-boat. Yeah, that's uh that's pretty much it. So Torpedo Alley is one of the nicknames that's given to the coast of North Carolina, like specifically the Outer Banks, uh in the beginnings of World War II for the United States. So more specifically, it refers to the German operation titled Drumbeat. So this operation lasts from early 1942 until about August of 1942. Mm-hmm. And I mean, all right, everyone knows a little bit about World War II history. Uh, when did the United States enter the war? December 7th, 1941. <laughs> That's actually a pretty good impression. Um, (laughs) I I, I could do more, but I I don't think that's what people are here to hear. So basically what happens is Germany immediately launches a U-boat offensive against Allied shipping. And they realize pretty quickly that the United States is not prepared for this. So they're going to be operating literally right offshore 
of the United States, the Eastern Seaboard. They're, you know, they're able to see the lights of cities. They're able to hear people talking on shore. It was always something interesting as a kid, you know, being in that area and fishing and going to the beaches there to think that World War II was literally fought right where you're standing. And that's not something that is common in the United States. You know, we think of those wars as happening over there, but this quite literally happened on the shores of the United States. Yeah, that's so interesting. And yeah, it's it's definitely not something I feel like you learn about. I mean, especially like in high school, I feel like you don't really learn that much about the world wars in the first place. Uh, but it's definitely not something that I was... I think cognizant of, you know, even having also spent time in that area, like now, I, I don't even think that I had retained that information that there was this much uh, naval warfare going on that close to the United right. States. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's super interesting. Um, so the Germans actually refer to this as the second happy time, <laughs> which is a really kind of cynical way of looking at it, but kind of funny in a way. It's fight a Glückgezeit. <laughs> the first happy time is actually in 1941. That takes place in the North Sea, where German U-boats are basically pillaging British shipping. You know, they're mm-hmm. sinking ships. Think about like the movie Greyhound. Uh, I know you said you hadn't seen that. I have. Um, it, it's kind of like that. It's this convoys and stuff going. You know, uh, basically near like the Arctic and everything. It's mm-hmm. like Iceland, places like that. Uh, but the time period that we're talking about takes place much closer to the U.S. shore. And kind of the area that you're this is specifically targeting is between Cape Lookout and Cape Hatteras. So you know, Cape Lookout in particular is an area that me and you are super familiar with. Spent a lot of picnics and things on the shores there. Built some sandcastles. Uh, we were super, sandcastles. Uh, we were super fortunate to have those experiences as a child cruising around on the uh, our grandpa's boat, the Rock and Roll. So that, uh, you know, we were fortunate to have those experiences. Uh, back to what we're talking about. So during this time, over 600 Allied ships are lost and thousands, thousands of merchant marine mariners are also killed. So this is not a great time. Like this is I saw one person that basically referred to this as the Pearl Harbor of the East in World War Two, uh, just happening over a much longer time period. Uh, to kind of give you a better idea as well, Germany only loses 22 U-boats. Seems like a good time to be a U-boat captain. I mean, it's still awful, terrifying, and you're probably not going to survive <laughs> the war if you're a U-boat captain. Uh, the podcast Lines Led by Donkeys actually has a great profile as to what that's like, mm-hmm. and it sounds awful. <laughs> um, but yeah, to exchange 22 U-boats for 600 Allied ships, I think in any conflict, you're going to make that exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, one of the most famous U-boat captains. Uh, his name is Eric Top, And keep that in mind because his name will be important later. All right. Uh, over the course of the war, he accounted for 35 merchant ships sunk, one warship sunk, and he damaged four other ships. And actually, his most notable achievement, or notorious achievement, depending on how you want to look at it, is that he sank the USS Reuben James, which was sunk on uh, Halloween 1941. Hmm. So Germany sinks a U.S. warship in October of 1941. What's important about that date? Because we're not in the war technically at that point. Yeah, I, um, I'm actually more surprised that this isn't a bigger story. 
because I, I just can't think that the United States is super excited to have one of their warships sunk before we're even in the war. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Because um, yeah, I I don't really know the story. I know that there is a song about it, but um, yeah, and that's actually yeah the the sinking of the Reuben James is the subject of the Woody Guthrie song mm-hmm. titled "The Sinking of the Reuben James," mm-hmm. which yeah, it's just interesting that. Um, yeah, I was completely unaware of that. I did not realize that it sank before we were actually in the war. And I mean, is that just a function of like, because is this, I mean, we talked a little bit about like the convoys and stuff before. This is about that time where these convoys are happening. So if you're kind of part of this convoy, is it just kind of like your fair game? Y- yeah, basically. I mean, uh, pretty sure that it was pretty obvious at that point where the U.S. stood that they weren't going to be right. on the side of Germany in the war. Right. And it was more a matter of time before the U.S. was involved. And, yeah, by being part of those convoys, I think you're basically declaring that, like, you, you support that and right. you would be a target. And in addition to that, like, it's the 1940s naval technology. A lot of these U-boats are firing torpedoes in a spread and you're hoping to hit a general area mm-hmm. in a convoy rather than targeting individual ships. Right. That makes sense. So let's, uh, let's move on to the subject of today's episode, the, the specific vessel that we'll be talking about. Uh, that vessel is the Atlas, which is a great name for a ship. I love it. The Atlas was built in 1916 by William Cramp and Sons <laughs> ship and ship and engine building in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This company sounds like uh, this sounds like something from a Charles Dickens novel. <laughs> William William Cramp and Sons. It definitely does. <laughs> uh, she was owned by the Sakani Vacuum Oil Company, and she was actually named the Sun Oil before her name was changed to Atlas in 1927. It's a good change. She's what's that? It's a, it's a good change. I'll say that's a good name change. Yeah. I definitely prefer Atlas to, uh, to sun oil. Uh, she's about 450 feet long, 58 feet wide, and she drew about 27 feet of water. So this is, it's a fairly substantial vessel. I mean, it's not like the super tankers we have nowadays, but it's a large ship. That brings us to April 9th, 1942. She's off the coast of North Carolina en route to Sea Warren, New Jersey from Houston, Texas. She's carrying a cargo of just over 84,000 barrels of gasoline, and she's captained by Hamilton Gray, which is a fun name. Mm -hmm. She's unarmed, alone, and not using any evasive maneuvers while traveling. That doesn't sound like a great situation to be in. Uh, the U-boat threat is known at the time. And you know, this is basically the worst case scenario. The only protection that the vessel has is that she's running blacked out. Hmm. Yeah, this seems, especially like you said, if this is an, obviously at this point, a known uh, issue that, that we've got U-boats off the coast, um, it does strike me as a very interesting that it was traveling uh, unprotected. Yeah. And what's interesting is this is world war two. We had used the convoy systems in world war one when we were, you know, having issues with U-boats. So to me, it's surprising that we didn't immediately go back to that. Mm-hmm. 
But it definitely sounds like there was just probably a lot of a lot of confusion at the beginning of the war and just a lot of like, we need this to get done, even if it's dangerous, like we need you to go do it. Mm -hmm. And part of that confusion has shown that Captain Gray actually receives three different sets of routing instructions while he's en route to New Jersey. So there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot going on here. Like, yeah, I guess for me, being entirely uneducated on the matter, like on the one hand, you can kind of see like. I mean, come on, what are the odds that, like, this one ship is going to get, you know, um, noticed? But then at the same time, it's like, okay, you've got you've got these fleets of U-boats literally prowling for exactly this type of thing. So, exactly. I, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like a wild animal. Like, if you're a gazelle by yourself, like, yeah, you can probably walk to the watering hole and walk back nine times out of ten. Mm-hmm. But that 10th trip is the one that matters. And like in this case, mm-hmm. that's what we're about to talk about. So suddenly around 2.50 in the morning, a torpedo tears into the number six hold on the starboard side of the Atlas. Uh, what do you think happens when a tanker carrying gasoline gets hit by a torpedo? It doesn't seem like the best thing that could happen to a tanker. It really doesn't. Fortunately... The ship does not initially does not initially ugh, sorry initially ignite. Um, there's a lot of damage, and Captain Gray is immediately aware that this is not a survivable incident as far as the ship goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he orders the engines to be stopped immediately, and that the men should execute the lifeboat evacuation process that they've been drilling uh, constantly before leaving. So if we were going to talk about bridge resource management, I think this is an excellent example. Mm -hmm. He takes charge of the situation. He knows his men have been trained. And again, that's kind of going into this knowing that this is a real possibility. Everybody's ready to execute the plan. They're just very fortunate that the vessel didn't immediately explode Mm -hmm. considering their cargo. Hmm. Uh. So, as I said, lifeboats are immediately lowered and the men are evacuated. Uh, The entire crew of 34 is actually able to evacuate in three lifeboats, and they're able to exit the ship in about seven minutes. To me, that's pretty impressive. It's very impressive. Uh, Especially considering all the confusion that's going on, and, like, you're on a ship carrying thousands of barrels of gasoline. Like, it's a pretty tense moment. And you know that there's a U-boat out there. Like, very clearly, he's still hunting, Mm -hmm. and your ship hasn't sank yet. So as the men row away from the Atlas, they spot the U-552, which is known as the Red Devil Boat. It actually has like a red devil painted on the conning tower. It's uh, pretty... You you sent me that picture in the Discord yeah. chat. And, yeah, I'll be uh, posting that. It's pretty cool. Not going to lie. Uh, don't wanna, I don't want to heap too much praise on, uh, on Nazi Germany here, but it's a cool looking boat. It definitely kind of evokes the, um, the image of like Blackbeard, which... Literally, Blackbeard operated in these <laughs> right. exact same waters. It it gives off that same imagery uh, as something like that. Mm-hmm. And the U-552 is actually captained by our previously mentioned Eric Top. So he surfaces at this point, and he actually launches another torpedo. This one hits in the exact same spot. This causes a massive explosion of gasoline, and just even more of that's pouring out into the water. The water actually becomes you know, saturated and catches on fire. Mm -hmm. This actually 
surrounds one of the lifeboats that's launched. So the men of that boat have to jump out of the boat and actually swim underneath the flames. Mm -hmm. Uh, The boat does emerge eventually from the flames and they're able to get back in it. But you can imagine that's a pretty harrowing scene to, you know, you've survived the torpedoing of your boat. You're in the water and you have to swim under like the flaming ocean. This goes, that's, this goes back to like when we talked about, I think first we probably mentioned this with the Sultana. And then I think also in our, in our episode about Poseidon adventure, this is, this is one of those, you've got, you've got a, a phobia for every person. You've got, of course, the water, you've got the, all of the fire, the explosions, you've got a little bit of everything. Yeah. There, yeah like, you, like you said, there's, you can pick your phobia and it's there. And there's just so many different ways that you can be killed uh, in these kind of incidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were 11 men in that boat that were surrounded by flames. Several of them were injured. And ultimately, two of the men in that boat are killed. The third mate and an able-bodied seaman are the only casualties from this uh, incident. And that's actually a pretty good testament to the captain and his abilities to get things done. Like we said, he shows great bridge resource management. And that's before this is even really a concept. I mean, that's not something that'll come along for another couple decades, really. But it's just a good, a good uh, example of leadership. You know, he, he knows what he needs to do. His crew's trained and he makes sure that it happens. So these, uh, these, these two, these are the only casualties. Yep. These two are the only two that are killed in this incident, which is pretty impressive for being Amazing. on a tanker that is torpedoed. Yeah. Um, there's actually a Liberty ship named after one of the men that's killed. Uh, it's the Richard D. Lyons, and that is named after the able-bodied seaman that dies in this incident. So I thought that was an interesting little bit of trivia that, um, you know, it's kind of a random ship that sunk at the beginning of the war, but they, they do name a Liberty ship after, after one of the crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another problem that we have here is that due to the suddenness of the sinking, no distress call is made. Uh, you know, you're just getting off the vessel. You're not taking the time to send an SOS or anything like that. Fortunately, in this case, all three lifeboats are carried towards the shore by the currents. And they're actually picked up by Coast Guard boats about seven miles from the scene where the vessel is torpedoed. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, at this point, you've got coast watchers. You've got a lot of people. People are aware pretty quick that this has gone on. So fortunately for the crew... Um, they're picked up quickly. How many times, how many stories have we told where people get off the vessel and then they're stuck in lifeboats for days? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're pretty fortunate that they only spend a few hours in the lifeboats and that the conditions are actually very favorable for survival. Mm-hmm. Um, so the men that are picked up, they're actually taken to somewhere that we're very familiar with, Moorhead City, North Carolina. Uh, five men are sent to the hospital with serious injuries. And actually, the facilities in Moorhead are pretty busy during this time. Um, there's actually another vessel that is sunk on April 10th. And it is... Go ahead and hit me with that name of that one. It's, uh, it's <laughs> we, a Spanish name. I know we talked about this before the show. The Tamaulipas. Tamaulipas. Yes, I've been struggling with that name for the last two days. Um, it's another vessel that's sunk. And it's uh, its crews are its crew is also evacuated to Moorhead and they're, they're sunk within a couple hours of each other. And they're actually both sunk by the same person. They're both sunk by Eric Top and the U-552. 
So he was a very busy guy uh, in this time period. And you can just imagine early in the war, a small city like Moorhead, and you know, you're getting all these casualties coming in. It's a very stressful time. Like you don't really know what's what's happening. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy to think about how close the war must have felt at that point. Yeah, I mean, especially I think as as Americans, you know, America has no no shortage of conflict in its history. Uh, but at the same time, we are in a sort of charmed position where it we don't usually think of it really touching us. Right. Um, so yeah, the the idea that this is happening just off the coast again is just so. Um, it is hard to wrap your head around, and it's probably especially so at the time. Um, you know, if you're if you're living on the coast, here. Yeah, this is a scary thing. This isn't something that's happening uh, in France. This is happening two or three miles away from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, as I said. Uh, Eric Top is one of the top U-boat aces from the war. And uh, unlike many of the U-boat captains, he'll actually survive the war. And he actually eventually dies in 2005. Hmm. So that's, uh, he, he goes on to work as a fisherman. He works in engineering. And he's actually fairly involved after the war in Germany and goes on to, to live a pretty productive life, which hmm. isn't common for U-boat captains. A lot of them never never see the end of the war. Right. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of the story of the Atlas. I know it's a shorter one, but it's also one that's very representative of the battle for the Atlantic and especially early on in the war. I could have picked from 50 different vessels and told the same story. And there's some that we may still talk about that have a little bit more going on. But this one's a little personal because I've been to it. I've fished this wreck. Um, you know, we like we said previously, we're very familiar with Cape Lookout and all that. Uh, it's just one of those, it's just probably one of the first shipwrecks that I really remember being told about. I remember going fishing with our grandpa and him saying, Hey, we're going to go out to this shipwreck and fish on it. You know, we were fishing for Mahi Mahi, King mackerel, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that really sparked my interest in shipwrecks was first being exposed to this and just wondering like, well, what's this story? Like what, what happened here? And just to mm-hmm. think how weird it is that we're literally at a battle site from World War II fishing. Like mm-hmm. it was, it, it struck me at an early age. Right. Yeah. I think Atlas tanker is too, too far out for my, for my tastes. Yeah. I don't know that you ever accompanied, accompanied us out there, yeah. but uh, I mean, you definitely spent a lot of time at the Cape lookout and all that stuff. Yeah. But I mean, uh, play, playing in the sand, I can do uh, <laughs> being on a boat. No, sir. So, um, as I stated, a little bit ago, uh, the Atlas tanker, which is the, the vessel is the SS Atlas locally. Everyone just kind of refers to it as the Atlas tanker. Um, it's a very popular recreational site. Now um, it's super popular for diving. It sits in about 125 feet of water. So it is a little bit of a deeper dive, but uh, for anyone that's intermediate or advanced or working with people that are, um, it's definitely something that's accessible. Um, it's a story that I read about a lot in one of my favorite books, probably one of the books I've read more than anything else. It's uh, it's a popular dive guide series book for the shipwrecks of North Carolina. Um, there's a lot of great pictures in it talking about the dive site and kind of how, um, just what it's like, what it's like to experience that wreck. And I always found that interesting because 
The thought of diving on a wreck is absolutely terrifying to me. I would never actually want to do it, but I find it super fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it's also a location noted for its sand tiger sharks, which (laughs) I do remember catching some um, when we would be fishing there. So I don't know. It would take a lot to convince me to, to go diving on a site that's noted for sand tigers. I'm, I'm good not doing that. (laughs) Uh, Kind of the final thing that we'll talk about a little bit is just the broader picture of World War II and the battle for the Atlantic. Uh, I know we referenced the movie Greyhound um, a little bit ago. Uh, For anybody that hasn't seen that movie, I highly recommend it. I love Tom Hanks. He does a great job in it. But what you're seeing in Greyhound is kind of the solution to this situation. What you're seeing there is a convoy. And obviously you're still going to lose ships, but it takes a lot more effort by the U-boats. And they end up using a wolf pack system where the U-boats themselves basically convoy up to counter the convoy. Mm. Um, you know, they're able to attack from multiple angles. They're able to hide. Um, in this case, the U-552 is literally just sitting off the shore of North Carolina waiting for targets of opportunity. Mm. Um, it's not a great thing if you're a merchant sailor and you're in that situation. Mm-hmm. But uh, the convoy system definitely changes the game a little bit, and it definitely allows the U.S. to be a lot more productive as far as what they're able to send, uh, send over to Europe. Mm-hmm. Right. But, uh, yeah, like I said, I could have picked various different vessels, and uh, we could have told the same story. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is one that I know, and it's one, like I said, that's kind of personal to me, definitely growing up and being exposed to that. It's kind of one of the things that makes me want to do a podcast like this, just to share these little stories, because honestly, I don't know that it's one that many people would ever even find, unless you're from that area or if you're a wreck diver or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just it's kind of fun to let everybody know like this is something that happened, and it's very representative of an experience that thousands of people had during world war ii mm-hmm. yeah that's that's an interesting um angle on it i think for me something from this story having to you know read through and, and read up a little bit on u-boat warfare in in world war ii and i think it's interesting in that you have some of the same you see some of the same concepts that you see if you read about you know aerial combat, uh, like in mm-hmm. like in World War One especially, where it is much more of a, you almost get the sense of a sort of chivalric uh, competition. Uh, it's it's almost like a, like a sporting event uh, to the people involved. You know, with the, with the U-boat captains, um, you know, and fighter pilots, um, you know, racking up these kills uh, that they've gotten. But it isn't really. It's not even really conceptualized in the same way as other warfare is. You know, it's much more of, you know, checking boxes and saying, oh, I sank this ship. I sank this ship. The focus is much less on, you know, I I killed this many people. Um, right. It's, it's much more, it's much more, I think, detached from the actual human toll of things. So it's interesting hearing how these U-boat commanders sort of discuss these things and how it is. It's it's a it's a competition. See who can who can sink the most, uh, who can sink the most ships or the greatest amount of uh, tonnage. So that's yeah. It's almost it's kind of gamified a little bit mm-hmm. uh, more than like a, a soldier in the trenches would be. And you see it also with kind of the 
almost gentlemanly conduct uh, that you see here. You know, when 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 they're sinking a ship, there's you know you, you sort of just leave it alone after that, um, and and let people survive as they will. Uh, so that that to me was I think the most interesting part is that this is happening, and then also sort of how it's happening because this is this is sort of one of those last gasps. Uh, in like a military history where you can kind of pretend that war is uh, a gentlemanly affair. Um, right. Like obviously it, it, it is not in truth, but like this is kind of the last time where we have that veneer that, that you know, war is something that, you know, gentlemen are doing with each other um, and we're, we're following X, Y, and Z rules. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting time. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, and I'm glad that we're able to do it. It's a little bit of a different episode than some of the other ones. It's not necessarily a, a straightforward shipwreck where someone made a mistake or anything like that. But um, yeah, I definitely want to do more wartime stories. I think they're very interesting. And especially these unique ones like this. Like I said, like it's you definitely don't think of World War II being fought on American soil. And it quite literally is in these scenarios where mm-hmm. there's U-boats operating right off of the coast of the Carolinas and Virginia and places like that. Right. But yeah, um, unless you've got anything else to add or any more thoughts, I think we've kind of got this one wrapped up. I think that, I think that covers everything on my end. Great. Yeah. Um, I had fun doing this one. Uh, definitely everybody reach out on our social medias uh, if you got suggestions for a story you'd like to hear, we always love hearing that. Um, give us a rating on iTunes. That really helps as well. I think we're up to uh, 10 ratings now, and I know it might not be a much in the grand scheme of things with podcasts, but it's always exciting to see another one on there, and mm-hmm. who doesn't like being told they're doing a good job? Exactly. Uh, we definitely appreciate that feedback, and we look forward to hearing from you guys. I hope everybody has a great week, and we will talk to you next week.